Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Anderson. In this episode, we hear from Dr. Renzo Shearer from the University of Chicago and Dr. Trin Vu from Emory University Hospital Midtown as they discuss COVID-19 antivirals and how to assess and manage drug-drug interactions between these and patients' home medications. To follow along with the accompanying slide set, please visit the link in the show notes for this episode. And to access all of our new podcasts, subscribe to the CCO Infectious Disease Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Now, let's get started and hear from Dr. Shearer as he discusses the current state of COVID-19. Welcome, everybody. COVID is not done with us, though I'm sure all of us would like to be done with COVID. So since the beginning of the pandemic in the United States, over 100 million cases confirmed. And I think more dramatically, 6.6 million hospital admissions cumulatively. And just since December 31st, 2023, 35,000 admissions and a cumulative death total of 1.1 million. And in that same time interval, the number of deaths has increased 14.3%. So COVID is not done with us by putting people still in hospital in spite of the widespread access to vaccines and is still a substantial cause of mortality in the United States. So after the nadir of July 2023, we're still seeing an increase in hospitalization. So one of the take-home points is that we are not done with testing for SARS-CoV-2 infection with our COVID-19 tests. And I think by now, Everybody's familiar with the rapid antigen tests that should be done in the presence of an influenza-like illness, unexplained, and especially in those who are at substantial risk of disease progression and hospitalization and more severe illness. So if that initial test is negative, it should be repeated in 48 hours, and any red line, even a faint one, indicates a positive COVID infection and should be viewed as definitive. And what that means is you don't have to repeat it or do three tests and take the majority of tests. When you have one positive test, you regard that as as true infection. And then I would advocate, and I think you'll be persuaded from this conversation, it's in your best interest to consider antiviral therapy. Um, Before we get there, it's just important to review what the current CDC recommendations are for the current updated bivalent vaccine for children aged six months to four years, in addition to one dose of the updated vaccine, if they've never had vaccinations, they should have multiple doses to be up to date. And in those multiple doses, one new dose of the bivalent vaccine is indicated. For children aged or anybody aged five years and older, there should be one dose of the updated vaccine. And it's very important to recognize that folks with significant immune compromise, additional doses of COVID-19 vaccine may well be indicated. So I think we are also familiar with the risk factors for the development of hospitalization and more severe illness, with the strongest predictor being increased age, where you see if you get to age 65 or older, you have a likelihood of mortality in the range of six, eight, and 10-fold greater than younger adults. So certainly age is the strongest predictor of risk. And then you see also 
substantial additional risk by comorbid conditions. And this is a long list that includes chronic pulmonary disease, chronic heart disease, neurodevelopmental disorders, chronic kidney disease, diabetes, active cancer, transplantation, sickle cell disease, immunosuppression, even tobacco smoking, and also medical dependence on a technology such as people who require dialysis. This is not an exhaustive list, but it certainly means that there's a substantial number of people at significant risk of both hospitalization and death. And this is even in the era of vaccination. So that leads me then to the current NIH guidelines for treatment, which are in priority and based on availability and patient considerations. But for non-hospitalized patients who have mild to moderate disease, but who are at high risk of progression, who fall on that list that I've just described of being senior or having substantial comorbidities, the agents that are recommended in order of preference are first nirmatrovir and metonavir orally twice a day for five days for all folks aged over 18 and for those who are aged 12 to 17 who weigh more than 40 kilograms. And certainly one of the important clinical considerations for this group is the timeliness of the diagnosis. So it's most effective when used within five days of symptom onset. I would actually go further to say that when the illness occurs, when the positive test is taken, the more rapid, rapidly the treatment can be started, the better, because you not only have reduction in, in the signs and symptoms, but you also have a reduced likelihood of the long COVID symptoms. Also, it's important to recommend, remember that there's renal dosing in the event of some chronic kidney disease with a glomerular filtration rate of 30 to 59. And remember also that ritonavir is part of this. So there are drug interactions that we'll talk about later. The uh, second recommendation is for remdesivir, which is quite effective when used intravenously once daily for a period of three days. In that case, there's a little more generous timing to be used within seven days of symptoms. And it's quite important to remember also that unvaccinated patients are those that benefit the most. I do not restrict my recommendations to people who are unvaccinated. Uh, I think anyone who falls into these risk categories is eligible and should be considered for antiviral therapy. Also, as an alternative treatment in the absence of the availability or access to those two medications is the oral agent malnupiravir twice daily, every 12 hours for five days. Malnupiravir also needs to be used within five days of symptoms and does have lower reported efficacy than the other agents and should be used with caution in women of childbearing potential and never used in pregnancy. So let's go to the case. It's 55-year-old with hypertension, dyslipidemia, type 2 diabetes has a partner living with MS who works as the 911 dispatcher on atorvastatin, liraglutide, and vicinopril and hydrochlorothiazide, who has just a day's worth of flu-like symptoms and has tested positive for COVID-19. So based on the NIH guidelines, which is the preferred antiviral treatment, if any, for this patient, nirmatrovir and metonavir is the first recommended choice for its Simplicity, it can be used as an oral agent, doesn't require three different days of an intravenous therapy as remdesivir does. And I want to then turn to some of the details in the antiviral considerations and hand this discussion over to Trin, who's going to talk about 
drug interactions and their management. That's great. Thank you, Dr. Fair, for that introduction and for going through the background information and, and talking about what the guidelines still recommend for uh, treatment. And so what we have here are the antivirals comparing and, and highlighting the major differences between them. But what I want to highlight, of course, are the drug interactions. So first with nirmatomy ritonavir, drug interactions are very common, and this is because ritonavir is a well-known, very potent inhibitor of CYP3A4, and so we'll see um, increased concentrations of very common medications. Then we have Mopiravir. The benefit to Monopiravir here is that there are no drug interactions identified. And then with remdesivir, there are some drug interactions with chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine, which can actually decrease the concentration or the effectiveness of remdesivir, and that, and that combination actually is contraindicated. And so understanding how to address these drug interactions are important to minimize the risk of toxicities and then also to ensure your patients are receiving the most effective antiviral treatment. And luckily, we have several great resources available to help us do that. So the first resource is the Liverpool COVID-19 Drug Interaction Tracker, which is an interactive tool where you can input in all of your patient's medication list and it'll pump out the interaction analysis. Now, I think the Liverpool Interaction track, uh, Checker is the best tool for a data review. It provides a very extensive summary of studies that have evaluated these drug interactions. It shares the number of patients that have been studied and shares the what the expected rise in drug concentrations are, as well as providing recommendations for how to address the management of the drug interactions. The next resource is the University of Waterloo, University of Toronto Drug Interaction Guide. And this is a document that lists out about 100 um, common medications and provides their recommendations for how to dose adjust. I think this resource is the best resource for practical management because it provides very step-by-step instructions of how to dose reduce, when to dose reduce, when to resume. And, and what I also like about this guide is that it provides recommendations based on patient risk factors. So for example, in a patient with Colpidogrel drug interaction, uh, the, the resource actually makes recommendations depending on the timing of their ACS event, timing of their PCIs. And so the, the dose recommendations do vary from patient to patient depending on their risk factors. And I, I love using this guidance um, because it can be really um, individualized. The IDSA also has a, a reference, and it's a document that also lists out common medications and what their recommendations are for drug management. Uh, the NIH also has a section on how to manage uh, drug interactions, and then uh, each, each individual drug also has, of course, there's prescribing information, and then under each drug interaction section, it also provides guidance on how drug interactions should be managed. And so I know we've talked a lot about drug interactions, but it's also important to remember that there's a handful of common medications that are not impacted by CYP3A4 and that can be safely administered with all of the antivirals. And this includes common acid reducers, commonly prescribed antidepressants, antihistamines, antihyperglycemic agents, cardiovascular agents, and lipid lowering agents. So this is not an exhaustive list, but this is a, a large list of common medications that a majority of your patients are probably on. And again, that they can safely be initiated concomitantly with oral um, antivirals or uh, remdesivir with no issues at all. But shifting our focus back to the drug interactions, and this time really focusing on your metrobir ritonavir, since ritonavir is our key player here. 
So here we have a list of common medications that are contraindicated with ritonavir because we can see toxic levels of concentrations of these medications that should be avoided. And then we also have in the blue box uh, medications in which concentration can fluctuate up or down but it can be administered safely with ritonavir, nirmatovir, with caution. So you can either hold the dose, reduce the dose, or cautiously monitor. And so there are uh, certain medications, uh, including the classes statins, in which you want to hold or decrease the dose. Uh, and not all statins can be given with nirmatovir, ritonavir, but the ones that can be are listed here, and that includes a torvastatin. When determining if your patient is a candidate for nirmatovir, ritonavir, you want to Thoroughly take the time to analyze their full medication list uh, and make sure you're not only evaluating just prescription medications, but also over-the-counter medications and any herbals they may be on. Since there are several resources out there, each with their different functionalities and different layouts, I want to make sure we orient you guys with these resources to make sure you're comfortable using them. And so the first thing we'll look at is the prescribing information, the package insert for nomatribia ritonavir under drug interaction. It does have a section that lists out uh, what to expect for torvastatin. And when used concomitantly, we can expect an increase in concentration with of a torvastatin. What the prescribing information recommends is that you can consider temporarily discontinuing a torvastatin during treatment with your matribiritonavir. And it goes on to say a torvastatin does not need to be withheld prior to or after completing your matribiritonavir. So based on the prescribing information, do you discontinue a torvastatin during your matribiritonavir treatment or not? And so I will say the prescribing information recommendations use very soft languages. It's not a strong recommendation, but it does say to consider holding based on the known risk factors associated with increased statin levels. And so taking all of this into consideration, I would hold the atorvastatin in this case. Uh, if your patient is not at high risk for a cardiovascular event and you can safely hold the medication, then according to this, I would hold the atorvastatin while on treatment. Now, what's important to point out is that there are going to be slight variations in recommendations uh, between each resource. Um, and you'll see that with the Liverpool Interaction Checker, and so when you go onto the webpage, the far left column is where you would enter the COVID drug that you want to initiate the patient on. And so in this case, we have nirmatribiritonavir, and you would check that. The middle column is where you would list out all of the medications that your patient's on, and you can list out as many as you want. If your patient has a list of 20 medications, go ahead and fill out all 20. And then the last column shows the uh, drug interaction analysis. And the color coding of the boxes are important. Um, and so any box that highlights green means no interaction is expected. You're good to go. A box that is orange indicates potential interaction and that dose modification is recommended. And then there could also potentially be a red box that indicates contraindication. And what's important is you want to go ahead now and click into that orange box, which will then show up this pop-up, which will then go on to describe what that interaction is and what the recommendations are. And so for nirmatribiritonavir with atorvastatin, the recommendation by Liverpool states that, and they, they take a, a stronger stance compared to the package insert. They say co-administration is not recommended and atorvastatin should be stopped. But they go on um, to say, however, if patients are at high risk for a cardiovascular event and co-administration is necessary, then you can reduce the atorvastatin dose to 10 milligrams daily and then resume that usual dose three days after completing your matribiritonavir. And then lastly, we have the resource from the University of Waterloo, University of Toronto. 
And so again, this is a document that lists out common medications and in alphabetical order. And so what you want to do is go ahead and find your of interest and then look for the corresponding symbol beside it. And so in this example, we have a torvastatin with a yellow caution symbol beside it, which indicates therapy modification is required. And so the University of Waterloo, University of Toronto Interaction Checker, this resource goes even into more detail and has even more specific recommendations with what to do. And so it says, yes, you should go ahead and hold the dose, but you don't want to restart that usual dose until two days after completion of nermatomiritonavir. Alternatively, it also has similar recommendations to Liverpool. It says that you can reduce a torvastatin dose to 10 milligrams and then resume the usual dose two days after. Most of the medications also have a comment on the side that it, that provides more detail into what to expect with the joint interactions. And then for completeness sake, we'll go through what the other symbols mean. And so a, a black triangle indicates it's contraindicated, do not use. A white triangle with a circle in the middle indicates it's contraindicated if the medication was used within the last 14 days. These are medications with long half-lives that remain in the uh, system after a long period of time. We also have a, a red stop sign that says, do not co-administer, go ahead and hold the medication, resume a few days later. We have the caution symbol, and then we have a green checkbox that means safe to go, no interaction expected. You can go ahead and give the medications together. And just to recap, the prescribing information, again, take a more softer stance, and they say you can consider temporarily discontinuing, and you do not need to hold a torvastatin before or after completing your match with The Liverpool COVID-19 interaction checker takes it a step further. It takes a stance and says co-administration is not recommended. However, if co-administration is needed, you want to reduce that dose to 10 milligrams daily. And then the most specific recommendation is by the University of Waterloo which says, go ahead and hold the doses. It should not be administered together. And then also continue holding until two days after completion of treatment. And then it also recommends reducing the atrovastatin dose to 10 milligrams daily. Now, I will say this is what I do in practice with my patients. I don't look at just one resource. I like to look at several resources, understand and, and read through what each one recommend, understand what the differences are in recommendations so that I can formulate my own plan for the individual patients. But going back to our patient, again, we have a 55-year-old patient with the following past medical histories who is taking uh, medications listed below, including atorvastatin 80 milligrams daily. This patient did test positive for COVID-19 after experiencing symptoms that occurred a day ago. And the healthcare provider has decided to prescribe neuromatrovirotonavir. What change, if any, should be made to the patient's atorvastatin 80 milligrams to mitigate a clinically relevant drug-drug interaction? Most of the drug interaction resources that we've gone through has recommended to either hold the medication or you can safely decrease the dose to 10 milligrams and give it concomitantly. Right. So now this brings us to our Q&A session where Dr. Sharon and I will go through the Q&A, any, answer any questions you guys may have, and, and we'll try to answer them as best as we can. Well, Trin, I'll start with one that follows right on your last slide because it's a, you know, it's common enough. So how do you handle it if there's, you search for a drug interaction and there's more than one possible way to, to manage the patient? You just gave a couple of different off options. So how, how do you make the choice or how do you proceed when you get a couple of different recommendations? That's a great question. And yeah, and, and the fact that there are so many different resources telling you what to do. Yeah. So what is the best way to approach it? Just think about the individual patient. What is their risk factor? Um, so in our patient example, if they, um, they're on a for dyslipidemia, 
And so if, if that's, it's a, it's a preventative medication, in that case, I would safely hold the medication or reduce. But if your patient is actually on a torvastatin and an anticoagulation and an antiplatelet for a recent cardiovascular event where messing around with their concentrations and, and holding the medication may put the patient at more at increased risk, then I would consider reducing the dose. I don't think I would hold that dose and then continue treatment that way. And so I think really understanding what the most recent risk factors are for the patient and what their most recent health events are, you should take that into consideration when assessing through your resources. Yeah, great. That's thanks. There's, a, I think, a very important question pointing out that some of the antivirals that we've reviewed are not available everywhere, in particular in Africa, where they rely primarily on remdesivir. So the questioner wants to know about advice for concerning drug-drug interactions with remdesivir. And that's a great question as well. And so as we previously pointed out in one of our slides, the really there's just a few drug interactions associated with remdesivir, and that's chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. And that is an interaction where we believe the those medications inhibit the effectiveness of remdesivir, reducing its effect. Now, if there if you have no other oral options or oral antiviral medications available and remdesivir is your only option then I would still administer that medication. Again, it's a perceived, expected, reduced from remdesivir, but there's still believed to be possibly some effectiveness. And so if you can still go and administer that remdesivir, try to overcome any of that interaction, then I would proceed with it, especially if you have no other options available. Great, thanks. I'll take the, the next one, which is a timely question asking, uh, what do we think of the news that the CDC plans to drop the five-day COVID isolation guidelines. So well, I want to answer that in a couple of different ways. First, to just let you know my profound respect for CDC as an institution for the individuals who work at CDC, including Rochelle Walensky, the past director, who's a friend and an exceptional individual scientist and clinician. And so they've come under some criticism because of the ups and downs with COVID that I think is largely unwarranted. Uh, this is a little bit of a trick question. They have not made this decision. They are floating this possibility and seeking public comment. So at the present time, there has not been a change in plans. And they are, I think, understanding that two states independently, Oregon and California, have recently made that decision to drop the five-day isolation guideline and say that an asymptomatic individual with 24 hours with no fever is able to resume normal work or to return to school. If to give my personal opinion, I worry that we're trying to put COVID in our rearview mirror too quickly. Um, with I spent some time talking about the ongoing morbidity and mortality, a 14% increase in the number of deaths or 1,500 deaths around the country per week from SARS-CoV-2 infection. So I'm impressed that it's still a problematic infection, and I worry that we may be returning too quickly. And Chin, let me see if you want to jump in on that, and then we'll turn to some other of our questions. Nothing else to add there. I, I definitely agree with you, Lorenzo. One of the questions I wanted to ask you is, do we know that there is a clinical benefit with Paxlovid in a vaccinated, boosted population that has previously been infected with COVID? Yeah, we do. I, I think that's a, a terrific question. 
so much of what we've described here has been occurring. So the uptick in the total number of cases and then the increase in hospitalizations, unfortunately, is continuing morbidity in the fraction. So remember, when we say that vaccines dramatically reduce hospital the threat of hospitalization and death, it's in the range of, of 70% to 90%, that still leaves a fraction who continue to have severe illness, oftentimes because of their associated comorbidities in their older age. We we do see that Paxlovid reduces short-term symptoms, makes you feel better, but also reduces the risk of hospitalization and and uh, and death in that population. So I, I, it's a very important question. It's the reason that I think we should not be abandoning COVID testing for ourselves, for our families, in our community, and for our patients, because there is this benefit of preventing further transmission within our families, within the communities, but also in improving our chances of not going to the hospital and not becoming severely ill with COVID, particularly those in my age group over age 65 or those with comorbidities. And I, I want to say there's no age limit to that. So I've recently treated two patients in their 20s, one with chronic kidney disease and another with type 1 diabetes, who are clearly at a greater risk, even in spite of vaccination of hospitalization and more severe disease. From Thank you for that. There's a great question that I'll take here. How do the patient's health literacy impact your decision on antiviral therapy since adjusting doses of other medications might be difficult for some patients? And I'll answer this and I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts are. Renzloba, great question. And I, I agree. I think in when you know, patients who are taking multiple medications are already, it's a complicated process for them already. And so for us to go in, dose reduce, or a hold a medication for a certain time period, it, it could definitely be very scary and frustrating for some patients. And so I think most important here, and I think there's multiple ways to approach this, but evaluating what resources and support that these patients have at home. Um, because when you're dose adjusting for um, for these drug interactions, you also want patients to know we're monitoring and, and have them watch out for what the expected side effects are. And so having, if if these patients have support at home to help guide them and, and watch for these drug interactions or uh, watch for these expected side effects, and then also provide a helping hand with resuming medications, dose reducing, I think uh, that's where I, I would assess, I, I would make sure there's some resources around and just really taking the time to go through these new steps with these patients. I think also some patients, they just have different ways of uh, learning or retaining information. So if it means writing this information down, setting out a calendar, letting them know exactly what date to dose reduce, what date to resume their medication, I think would be helpful too. So just really understanding what uh, exactly those barriers are and ensuring the resources are available for them. Any additional thoughts on that, Dr. Chair? Well, I agree with you, Trin. It also echoes the question, how do you handle a patient with ritonavir boosting? And I think those of us in the field as HIV clinicians are very comfortable with uh, using ritonavir and, and managing that drug interaction, particularly in the case that we've just described with the use of a statin um, concomitantly, where the lowest, starting the lowest dose of atorvastatin is I think pretty familiar. And and so it's rarely in my experience been a deal breaker for uh, for that to prevent the use of a ritonavir containing regimen. And I appreciate the question. I don't think you have to have 
a higher level of health literacy in order to accept Paxlovid and make an, an adjustment. You, you may also think that rather than change a dose or it may be simpler just to hold a medication for five days or seven days and then resume for a patient rather than trying to figure out some lesser dose or to cut a pill in half. And I think those are things that we can work on individually with our patients, but I don't think this requires some higher level of health literacy. Much more to the point, I would want to broaden access to antiviral therapy to reduce hospitalization and severe illness and to make that as broadly available as possible. And I don't think drug interactions present a very high barrier to that. I'll, I'll start with a question. Will you be offering guidance on the current status of research or the treatment with antivirals for PASC, which is a way of saying long COVID? I know there have been other educational programs, but I'll say a couple things. We've certainly learned that the full vaccination, which includes now this recommendation for the uh, bivalent vaccine currently, that that is clearly associated with a reduction in long COVID symptoms, particularly the most severe forms. And I think the evidence is mounting that you do see a benefit, probably a little more modest, with the use of antiviral therapy in a reduction in the incidence and severity of post-sequelae of COVID. I don't know if you have other things to add to that. No, I, I definitely agree. I think what I've seen, the strongest data in probably is the benefit of vaccination, really reducing that risk of long COVID. So really emphasizing that and would be excited to see any, you know, any new studies that come out with the added benefits of antivirals. There is another question here with about long COVID. So how important is it to get an indicated patient on a COVID antiviral to prevent or lessen development of long COVID. And so I'll, I'll take this and then uh, your, your thoughts. But yeah, so the earlier you can really initiate a Paxlovid or any antiviral treatment, you're reducing that viral replication phase. You are treating the, ensuring that your, your symptoms are improving early on. And I think that's the most important to uh, tackle those uh, acute symptoms early on to really prevent the development of, of, of long COVID. And so I think the timely testing is important, timely initiation is important, and just making sure there's nothing that we're doing and, and uh, to delay treatment by any means, because really ensuring those acute symptoms are addressed early on makes sure that lessens the chance of really developing long COVID. Yeah, great. I agree. Uh, there's a question asking about taste abnormalities and how often can treatment with nermatrovir reduce reduce that incidence when in I, I think the the preponderance of evidence is that each of the different symptoms associated with long COVID can be reduced with the use of antiviral therapy, including nermatrovir. It's not a it's not a cause. And so I I know I think the the questioner is referring to the sort of metallic taste that is a side effect that's associated with the use of nermatrovir that is short-lived, that occurs during the course of therapy, and then is it was resolved shortly thereafter. So I, I think the more important question for the use of nermatrovir is to what degree can it reduce long-term symptoms of long COVID. And I think we're still learning that answer, but it's substantial enough to add to the weight of the arguments for considering its use in an older person or someone with comorbidities. And again, as Trin has just said, for doing a rapid t test, 
in a timely way within five days of the onset of an influenza-like illness. So you can identify people who are at risk of severe illness. Uh, there's one last question, and I'll put it to you, Trin, and then we can both take it. What are some of the symptomatic management options for pediatric patients with COVID who are too young or not otherwise indicated for COVID antiviral? What do we do in the absence of the use of antiviral therapy? It's a great question. And this is a, a subpopulation that are our most vulnerable or one of the most vulnerable. And unfortunately, we don't have a lot of treatment options for them. And so I would say for the pediatric patients, symptomatic management, making sure we're addressing any of the uh, symptoms they're having, whether that be cough, breaking their fevers, just making sure symptomatically these kids are comfortable so that they can, you know, continue to go on and, and, and do their thing. But really, I think symptomatic management, making sure they are isolated, masked up, really staying away from any other further exposure or even at risk of developing or contracting any other viral illnesses is really most important. Yeah, I, I agree completely with your answer. And I think that brings us to the end. Dr. Sher, do you want to take it home with the uh, take home points? Sure, I'd be happy to. I mean, we've really hammered the need for early diagnosis, either by PCR or by a rapid antigen test, being really essential for outpatient care. I think we need to make sure our, our patient populations, our families and communities are still aware of the importance of identifying COVID. We've seen that symptoms and risk stratification really determine eligibility for treatment, those who are senior, who have comorbidities, or who are immune compromised. We have several effective treatments. The antivirals, dimetrovir, ritonavir, and remdesivir are preferred, and the alternative, malnipiravir. And I think we hopefully have convinced you that uh, most drug-drug interactions are manageable, shouldn't prohibit treatment with an antiviral when one is indicated. So thanks very much for your attention. It's been a pleasure to work with you, Trin. Of course. Thank you. I'd like to thank Dr. Shearer and Dr. Vu for that excellent discussion and thank you to our listeners for joining in. As a reminder, to view the slide set for this podcast, a downloadable resource, and the full program on COVID-19 case challenges, employing outpatient antivirals and addressing drug-drug interactions on the CCO website, click on the links in the show notes for this episode. And please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thank you. Thank you.